Okay. First of all, I want you to take everything that you know about writing and throw it in the garbage can. Um, and I want you to think about words differently. You are no longer operating where you need to write the perfect sentence. What you are doing with language when it comes to building what Mark just said is, you, is engineering. I want you to think of yourself as an engineer. It's not about being right. It's not about being wrong. It's not about sounding good. It's not about sounding bad. It is about being effective. How do I get a person I've never met before to take an action, to trust me? How do you go from Emory Research Lab to working with global consumer brands and then getting into the world of online marketing and then direct response sales copywriting? Those are just some of the questions that we're going to be answering today with Margot Aaron. Margot is the co-founder of Brainstorm Road, a community of practice for shipping your dream project. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about the essentials of copywriting, which you're going to want to pay attention to because Margot has also created online courses that have taught over 4,000 people how to do ethical marketing online. We also talk about how consultants are often unprepared for productizing their expertise because it now puts us into the role of creative. We also cover how and why you need to blend into the conversation that is already happening inside of your customer's head. With that, let's go ahead and get right into it. Oh, welcome to the show, Margot. I'm so glad to have you. Um, seriously, thank you for taking the time to be here. Um, we have known each other at this point now for, I think, a decade. No way. Um, yeah. Wow. <laughs> oh, wait. Any excuse to talk to Mark and I'm here, you guys will discover. <laughs> uh, this, this, uh, this, it's, it's excellent because it's like the thing that I, I, I shared on uh, Primaj's uh, episode, you know, another uh, dear friend of both of ours, is that for those who are listening in who already know us, um, my goal is for them to get to know you in a way they've never known you before. And for anyone who has yet to meet you, for them to understand the genius that is Margo. <laughs> um, you see, I knew that was going to be the response, but it's there. Trust me, people. Yeah, she's being humble. Um, so <clears throat> the one thing to, to really um, kick us off that I think people ought to know is... I would love for you to share about how your background in research and psychology just informed how you then left the world of academia and then got into the world of marketing. So I'm what's called a recovering academic and the debate still stands whether I left or they kicked me out. But um, <laughs> so I, I started my career as a researcher in a psychological uh, actually psychiatric research lab on mood and anxiety disorders. And I didn't know it at the time, but I was in charge of the sales funnel, but they don't call it a sales funnel. They call it um, qualifying patients for whether or not they get into the study. So I was screening on the phone to see whether or not people met a certain criteria to come in to our clinic. Then I moved up the ranks, became an assessor. So I was the person that, let's say if it's a depression study, that I would determine whether or not you met the basic criteria 
for um, depression and other things like we used an fMRI machine so you couldn't have um, metal in your mouth um, and so that might disqualify you even though you had everything else and then I would determine that you were uh, able to come in then I would sit you down and screen you that would take I don't know two hours and that process was really personal and it, it looking back it's incredible that they had someone pre-grad school do that because it's called um, a skid interview and it's several hours where I go through your mental health history and you have to be um, pretty rigorously trained on the uh, assessment tool and um, and then I would track people throughout the study so um, we were looking at things like whether or not you improved um, or uh, on medicine or uh, therapy, and we would compare the two um, and different types of medicine. It's called a double blind controlled study. So I could never know what you were taking. Um, so this is way too much detail, but effectively I got to do work that was really meaningful, really important, mattered a lot to me and um, was personally relevant to my interests. I was fascinated by uh, how people work, what we feel, why we feel what we feel. And more importantly, what I was able to observe in that clinic was Two things that drove me nuts. Number one, people who didn't take action um, on things that they know they needed to do and uh, wouldn't do it. And it's not that they wouldn't or couldn't. It, there was something that I couldn't put my finger on, which prevented them from getting better and feeling better, even though there was a desire. And then the other side of that coin was how much information there was in the academy about mood disorders like depression, like anxiety, like bipolar disorder, like schizophrenia, uh, and uh, also just basics about the physics of human psychology that mm -hmm. the mainstream humans did not know. So I would find yeah. myself, I mean, it was in my early twenties. So I would find myself going out when I was cool and I would have conversations with people. And once they found out you're in psychology, they would tell you, you know, after a couple of beers, like, Oh, I'm taking this. And I, a psychologist oh, told me, and they just start sharing secrets with you. And here's the big reveal. We all have the same secrets. <laughs> we all have them. And um, they just felt comfortable enough telling me about them. And I was just like, I was fascinated how there were basic things about our brains and our behavior and our thoughts and our desires and our feelings and how they work that we just didn't know. We just hmm. didn't know. And we still continue to uh, promote the wrong ideas that are based in like Freudian analytics from a hundred years ago that have been de like fully debunked, but um, our culture encourages them. So these two things drove me nuts. And mm. I was the person, as you can tell probably from the way I'm speaking now, that would sit down with the principal investigator, uh, investigators of the study and be like, can you explain this to me? And they'd be like, no, go do something else. Um, and uh, I, I couldn't let it go. And so I went to graduate school. I had all the same questions and I was learning so much. And my plan was to be a researcher and to sort of solve some of these problems. And what I discovered was there are people who can change the system from within and there are people who can change the system from outside of it. And it was very clear to me that I was one of those people who needed to uh, help at the causes I cared about from outside of the system that they were contained in. I, I did not... Uh, play well with others inside of me. <laughs> um, it drove me. It drove me nuts. And I do think you really need to be obsessed with research methods. And I was obsessed with why the mainstream doesn't have the information that we have. That was the thing that really lit me up. And it was a it was a research advisor who sat me down. And he was like, "You are really good at translating complicated information to the masses. You should pursue like something more like in media." And I was like. Pfft 
that's below me. Like, why would I do media? And he, and I, he said, well, have you heard of market research? And I said, no, obviously not. And that, that is what landed me accidentally in marketing because I ended up learning about market research. And I was like, oh my God, there's a place where they look at human behavior in real time and they ask the questions I'm trying to answer, which is like, why are you doing this? And why didn't you do that? And how do we know? And how do we affect change? And how do we use these principles of psychology to help you take action in the direction that you want to go? And it turns out there's a whole field called marketing and sales that does this. Um, and I've never heard of it before in my mind marketing sales and business was something that was below you it was something that um you know you you scoffed at it, it wasn't intellectual it wasn't smart it was showy it was boastful it was um cheesy it was like that you sales guy stereotype it was self uh self-aggrandizing and that is the opposite of what they teach you in the academy right they basically say not even be humble because no one in the academy is humble, but like pretend to be, right? Like mm -hmm. pretend to be, let people say, like discover that you're smart and like purposely obfuscate, right? So one of the one of the recurring fights when I made a joke earlier that I don't know if they kicked me out or I left, the answer is I left. But one of the jokes, I, running jokes I had with a um, professor was that I would get so stuck on the frivolous use of adverbs and passive tense in the way that we wrote up journal <laughs> articles. And he would be like, oh my God, please stop. <laughs> and I couldn't understand it. I was like, there's an easier way to write this sentence. And if you are talking about a concept like happiness and you define it with such vague terms, this is effectively a meaningless meta-analysis. And he sort of looked at me without saying it and was like, I know, <laughs> but we need to question. it's a good meta-analysis. So um, yeah, so, so this was not an effective use of my time. So to answer your question on sort of how we got to here, uh, I, I found myself fascinated with this world of marketing coming in from the lens of human behavior and why we make the choices we make. And, and it sort of, it actually landed me in behavioral economics for a while. And if y'all haven't geeked out about that, let me tell you, start with Dan O'Reilly, um, Ariely, I don't know how to say his last name. Um, he wrote Predictably Irrational. That's where I would start. And then, and then you can move to thinking fast and slow and all the, all the classics and nudge and all of that. But like really getting clear on um, the way that our, our brains are not rational thinkers in the way that you think that you are. I think that is the biggest misconception people had that drove me nuts is that we're like, I'm a human being and I can make rational choices. Like actually you're really, really bad at that. And you're, you're actually a social and emotional animal, but you're capable of rational thought and behavior, but not if you don't feel your feelings and not if you deny that you have them. So let's talk about how this works. And, um, and how, you know, how does this all relate to business, right? So it, it is intimately tied to business. And this is what used to fascinate me because I would sit, I ended up uh, leaving grad school after getting my master's, decided not to pursue my PhD and went to um, market research where I would be in, I mean, we, we think of it as focus groups. So it's a lot more than that, but, but let's take the example of focus groups of really just trying to understand and deconstruct why people buy what they do and what brands they're attracted to or not attracted to and, um, and how they make a decision. And um, oh, paradox of choice also should be added to everyone's list. That's a really good one. And so I remember sitting in these rooms and I'll never forget the, uh, I don't think I'm allowed to talk about it. There, it was, um, we'll call it a jewelry company. And yeah. uh, it was ostensibly on paper, a very, very vain and superficial 
um, materialistic customer that, um, that I, as a academic and person who'd been chronically underpaid her whole life was like, ugh, you know, and we all are very judgy of these kinds of things. And I discovered through market research that, you know, a diamond is not about a diamond and mm -hmm. gold is not about gold. And, um, an engagement ring is not actually about engagement rings and that there is a story we're all telling ourselves as to why we are attracted to the things we're attracted to. Because at this point in history and time, we all have what we want, what well, we all have what we need, right? We have food, we have shelter. Um, we have and like our needs have sort of changed. Like you need Wi-Fi. That's ostensibly not on Maslow's hierarchy, which also has been debunked mm -hmm. by the way. Um, oh, really? Uh, tell me more about that. Yeah. It's, like, gotta... like, it's, it's called the new theory that replaced it of motivation is SDT self-determination theory. I think is what it's called. But okay. anyway, um, so, uh, the, the, the needs that we have as a society are effectively met by most consumers in America. Let's, let's talk very specifically about the society in which we're operating. So why you buy something is not motivated by need, right? It's motivated by want. It's motivated by desire. And so when we start to understand what people want and what they desire, we start speaking a whole different language because then you can get to, uh, you have to understand people's hopes, fears, and dreams. And that is where human behavior and psychology sort of meets the market. And we infuse story into these products. So when I say that like a diamond is not a diamond, what I mean is a diamond, it, this is different for everyone, might mean to you um, stability. It might mean um, improvement upon the marriage your parents had that scared the shit out of you and now you have something that they didn't. Or it might mean that, uh, it, it, it might mean commitment. It might mean fear, it might mean total fear and panic because it might mean money, it might mean status. You know, there's all these things, but it's not about the diamond because if it was, we wouldn't pay so much for it because that's not the market value. <laughs> So, so objects. All right, go. I, right. I, I want to dive in here because yeah. like there's there, my mind's gone in like uh, five directions. All of them very interesting to me. But also make sure that I'm going to reveal my thought process and not get my pen stuck in my beard, uh, apparently, while I talk to you. <laughs> but the I can hear the mind of somebody that's listening to this, like, oh man, that sounds fascinating. Um, but like, how does this apply, right? And it's like the way that it applies as well. If you understand human behavior, you understand your own behavior, you also understand your team's behavior, you also understand the behavior of the person that's maybe you're trying to buy from or the person that you're trying to sell to, the person that you are trying to guide, the person that you're trying to transform, it all relates. Um, and so like, if you understand that, you're gonna be better and able to be able to um, facilitate change, uh, basically. But to dive back into um, an earlier point that you shared just now, what then is a better model for us to be able to understand um, human behavior? Empathy and perspective taking. So okay. the number one question I get from people is like, how do I make them want this? And how do I get someone to buy this thing? And it's the wrong question. It's the wrong question because you can't make anyone do anything that I think that is the the illusion that a lot of marketers and salespeople try to feed you and anyone who's had a toddler or a teenager knows this because if you tell a teenager to come home on time you cannot make a teenager do anything that they don't already want to do so the better question and the one you should be asking is 
why do I care? Like, what, mm-hmm. what is it? Let me back up here. Mm-hmm. You are a person living your life, right? You, right now, ostensibly, you are listening to this podcast or watching us on video. And you are staying here. Why? Because there's something of value to you. There's something that it does for you. There's a problem that it solves. So you have to assume the same is happening in the mind of your customers or your colleagues or your audience or your readers or your viewers. They're asking themselves, why should I care? Because right now, like I just told you, they have all their needs met. It's their desire that they don't have met. So how are you fulfilling that? And Mm. learning how to translate or even identify what is it that they want? What is it that they think they want? Because those are not always the same. And then what are you communicating to them? And how do you make those two things match? Because it's that matchmaking that's the magic. It's that matchmaking that's the field we call messaging. Because most people, when they do sales, are really showcasing themselves. They're performing. They're going, okay, here are the legitimate reasons why you need da-da-da-da-da. But you haven't indicated that I want it. So there are many great reasons why I should update all of the light bulbs in my house. But you forgot that I don't value light. So I don't care. I am not going to go. You can make the most logical argument you want in the world. But if you sat here and you went, okay, what does Margot care about? She's super vain. She cares about how she looks. Um, She cares about um, her profession. She has to be on video all the time. What if I make a case to her that not that she can close more sales, but she's going to look hotter if she changed and like the angle's going to be better. and It's going to take her less time because she values her time. Um, to set up for a call like this and she won't be so grainy like she is right now, maybe, maybe we can start uh, infiltrating into the story she's telling herself and make the case. So she makes the case to herself why she needs this. Mm. Got it? Oh, that's that's great. Um, I have follow-up questions to this, um, right? So like one, one thing that I played with is um, thinking through like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but then also thinking through um, what Tony Robbins calls um, six basic human needs. Uh, Would you say that is a valuable model for, are you familiar with like the six basic human needs that like Tony Robbins talks about by any chance? I can run through them real quick. No, I don't really care. Maslow's more important. All right, so <laughs> the, so so the reason why I bring it up is um, what he's sometimes good at is simplifying, basically. Um, and I mapped basically mapped self actualization and transcendence, like the top of you know Maslow's extended hierarchy of needs, um, to what he just calls growth and contribution. It's like okay, yeah, growth is a simpler way to describe self actualization, and then okay, contribution, helping other people self actualize, so on and so forth. Um, is there a, and so thinking of those as like the deeper needs that somebody might have, you know, beyond like the base needs. And so they want to be able to contribute to others. They want to be able to um, grow themselves into maybe becoming the best version of themselves. Is there a place in marketing and messaging uh, for being able to communicate that? And could it be as effective or more effective than the standard style of marketing um, that we see? Absolutely, but it depends on what you're selling. I think, okay. I think it's more important that we get people to understand that all of us have a narrative, like a little tiny chatterbox that lives in our mind that narrates everything going on around us. And 
the goal you have with your marketing is to plug into the story that they're already telling themselves. So the detective work you want to do is not what am I selling and why is it important, but what's the story your customer is telling themselves about what matters to them, which might not be an accurate story about reality. So for example, uh, if you are a person who um, sells dating services and, um, and you're like a coach, let's say, and the truth is you're, you're solving for loneliness. But if you lead with, are you feeling lonely? No one's gonna <laughs> answer that ad because one, we're not yeah. consciously aware of it, even though that is what's motivating us. So it, it, we aren't aware. Um, and two, no one's admit that even if they are aware, because it sounds pathetic. None of us are gonna be like, I'm super lonely. Um, that's like something that you share in, in confidence with someone you mm. care about. So you wanna meet them where they are. So you have to identify what's the story they're telling themselves. Well, it matters if, um, if they're a, a, a woman who wants to have children, the story she's telling herself is like, I'm getting old. Um, mm. Or the story she's telling herself is, I want someone to spend my life with. Um, the story she's telling herself might be, um, I'm recently divorced and I want to have a lot of sex and I want to look cute again. And I, you know, find those stories because you're not going to get to that core psychological uh, motivator, but you do need to know what it is because you're sort so of- Sorry, go ahead. Like not, you're you're winking to it the whole time. Yeah. So so there's two pieces to this, right? Um, communicating the story that they are aware of, and then also being aware of the deeper story, like the yeah. core motivator story that you just shared, that might be too painful for them to um, speak about. You know, even in their mind's eye, you know, um, uh, with whatever piece of messaging you know, yeah. that you're putting out there. Uh, how do you know uh, which of, how do you know which story is which and, mm -hmm. and, and yeah. to even tell that you're not yes. going, you're, you're not going for the jugular yes. uh, and all of that. Yeah. Now that's the right question. Okay. So number, I would say research and testing. <laughs> that's the short answer. Mm -hmm. The longer answer is, um, interaction with your customers, first and foremost, talk to them. But the most important thing you have to do, and everyone listening, I learned this the hard way through Mark Aaron's. And what Mark Aaron's <laughs> taught me was to shut up. Um, he said it much more eloquently because he's Mark and he would never say that to my face. But the, the, the answer is listen. And you don't listen to what people say. You listen to what they're not saying. You listen to the story that comes out, like their justifications, their rationalizations, the excuse making, like there's always a story under the story in the same way that like, how would you answer? How do you know a guy likes you? Mm. It's very rare that a dude that you just met the first time is like, I like you, right? But you, you hear it in the way he flirts with you. You hear it in the extra two seconds he spends making eye contact with you. You like, there are the things that are unsaid. That's what you're looking for. Now, most people don't necessarily have this skill uh, you do because you're a person and you have it and to navigate human relationships, you were born with it. But as far as honing it in a research context, it's a different, um, like you have, you have to pay attention and you have to listen. And this is what makes someone naturally good at sales, to be honest with you, mm. is this feature of being able to listen to what is not being said and the story the person's telling themselves. Mm. So how do you identify it is, is kind of the question you're asking. And um, the way we used to do it is um, look for patterns. 
So I talk to enough people that you start hearing something over and over again. You create a hypothesis and then you take that hypothesis. So I'll give you an example. I used to work uh, for a bar studio and um, they wanted to increase customers. And so we interviewed a lot of people thinking, okay, you know, why would you go to this bar studio versus a different one? And what we discovered in having open-ended qualitative conversations with people was nobody, what, <laughs> you? Quick bit of context for what a bar studio is for international oh. <laughs> listeners who have no idea. What, what. <laughs> it's like Pilates met ballet and they had okay. a baby. It's exercise. Right. <laughs> it's not where you go to drink. Oh, that's funny. Thank you, Mark. So no uh, we, we were looking at why you would decide to go to a bar studio and a particular one, you know, we're like, okay, cause it's close. Cause it's nearby, right? You just you think of all these different reasons. And what we discovered was the decision architecture after having, you know, maybe 15, 20 discussions with people, which is still not enough, but enough that you can start to see a pattern was um, you are not competing with other bar studios. You're competing with the couch. The question people were asking themselves was not, should I go to bar three or extend bar? They were going, should I work out today or not? And that was the question they were asking themselves. Once we figured that out, we could create this next part of your question, the ad campaign or the messaging or the sales strategy that would lead to, that, that we could test. Um, and that led to the messaging. So, so the question you asked is, you know, how do you know? So one is pattern recognition, listening to what people aren't saying, but recognizing if there's a pattern in the types of things people are saying, the way customers are showing up, the complaints they're having, the reasons they're citing, the reasons they're not, like you wanna listen for all of that qualitatively. Um, and asking open-ended questions is a really good way to do that. There's a book called The Mom Test that is the phenomenal, phenomenal written that? by like yeah. a frustrated startup founder who um, is an engineer. And he wrote up, it's got a really phenomenal um, tactical examples of questions you can ask and like ways to construct interviews that are amazing and why you get bad answers and bad data and to save you like a lot of time. And it's really short, highly, highly recommend. So, so that's one way to do this. Um, and then there's the testing piece. So the testing piece can be as simple as like right now, I'm on a podcast with Mark Ahrens. You guys are going to hear it. When we get to the end of this, I am probably going to be asked, where can people find you? What are you working on, right? I'm working on something that I'm testing how I'm talking about. You don't know that, but I know that. So every time I talk about it, I talk about it a little differently and I watch Mark's face. I watch what happens after this podcast goes live. I look at uh, the behavior people take, not what they say, what they do. And that's what tells me I nailed it or I destroyed it. And um, an example of this is I'm working on a project called Brainstorm Road. And for the longest time, um, we were calling it uh, a community of practice where you can work on your ideas, right? The vaguest piece of garbage line ever, but we were, we were just like <laughs> working on it just to see yeah. like, what would people do? And um, it turned out when I changed the word idea to dream project, Ooh. It immediately set off, like people self-identified, but no yeah. one resonated with the word idea. But if I said a community of practice for people working on their dream projects, all of a sudden, even if they didn't understand what jarble I just said, 
um, they were like, dream project. I have one of those. Yeah. I have one of those and yeah. I want to work on it. And I want to meet people who are working on it. But let, let me nice. in, let me in. What, what, I, I don't care what the other stuff is. Um, whereas when I said ideas, people got stuck on what's a practice, oh, a community. So it's just like a Facebook group, which it's not. Um, and, uh, and, and I'm like, oh, for shipping your work. And if you aren't familiar with the jargon, you don't know what the heck shipping means. Um, and if you've, ne if you've never read any of those books that people like us read. Um, and so that, it wasn't helpful. It wasn't a good line. So mm -hmm. to your point about uh, our point on testing, like we went to the market, it wasn't formal, right? I didn't conduct formal market research. I just talked to people. I talked to muggles in my everyday life to see how to talk to them about it. And then I talked to people in my market through, you know, Instagram, podcasts like this, my email list, like just different places where I can test it. And most important point of all, don't be afraid to mess it up. Like you're going to get it wrong. You're going to get it wrong. And you're going to use the wrong positioning and you're going to use the wrong language. And then you're just going to update your hypothesis and try a different angle. That's how you do it. Ooh, two things come to mind in response to this. Uh, the first is um, you mentioned this earlier on in our conversation, uh, but I really just wanted to underline it because there was this quote that you said before, which is um, you don't want to stand out, which is what a lot of people always want to do and they're like marketing and messaging they don't want to stand out you want to blend into the conversation that's already happening inside yes. Yes. of their head you know and that what you did just now was like a perfect like illustration of like that actually yes. happening uh so that that was super helpful um the second thing uh that i wanted to ask you in response to that is when we are creating because context in my experience uh consultants you know and consultant adjacent adjacent like service providers you know we don't seem to realize that when we decide to productize our expertise we have now stepped into the role of creator mm -hmm. you know and now we're in the creative land of like and the entire creative process design process and everything like applies and with it coming every single cognitive bias and like affliction that every writer <laughs> has ever had <laughs> before <laughs> and are just woefully unprepared yeah. for the mental game yes. that will then happen in response to the shipping of the work to getting yeah. that dream project out there. And so if you had to prep someone you know for like that side of it. everyone talks about all the tactics and everything of how to do there but none of those tactics will ever get done if we don't understand our own psychological journey that we are now embarking on and like how to deal with that could you tell us more about that this is the, this is the topic y'all because i will tell you when i first started my what i don't want to call it a blog but i guess it's a blog um that seems important i was writing about marketing and I wanted to have conversations about marketing. And I realized after a couple of years in business, people came to me and they were claiming to have marketing problems, right? I need more followers. I really want to grow my business. I want to 10 X, whatever. <laughs> like they all wanted these outcomes. Mark 99.99999% of them did not have a marketing problem. And it would take me and them countless thousands of dollars to discover that they had a self-doubt problem or that they had a testing problem or they had 
some, it, it was them getting in their way. And yeah. this is not true of everyone, but of the particular type of entrepreneur we're talking about, especially if you're the entrepreneur doing marketing and the work is personal or the work is a reflection of you and your expertise and your knowledge. If you are trying to, uh, if you're the thought leader and it is, it is you that you're productizing, it's a whole different ballgame because you're not just uh, selling a widget that you can be objective about. It's the opposite. You are the least objective person to sell your own stuff, right? And what you think is great about it is probably antithetical to what the market thinks, but you would have no way of knowing because we cannot be objective. I cannot tell you, I'm sure it's on um, <laughs> way back machine somewhere that uh, the amount of terrible bios I have written about myself um, oh, no. <laughs> because I was like, this is the most interesting thing about me and everyone needs to know it. And it's so important. And like, there, there's something about an about page for consultants, um, people who do freelance work, creative entrepreneurs, people who are thought leaders or experts. We cannot be objective about what it is the market cares about us. We feel like we have to tell our life story, and it's be it's because we're we're not wrong, right? Like what you were saying about bias was is really important here because when someone says, you know, tell me about you, they do what I did in the beginning, which is like kind of verbal vomit a little too much about unnecessary details that are not relevant. What the person wants to actually know, write this down, y'all. When you're writing an about page, the thing that they want to know is why should I care and why should I trust you? That's what they want to know. So they're scanning for that. They want to know, have, have you worked with impressive people? Have you done something that is, is something that I um, respect? Uh, is something that makes me feel like they're looking for that halo effect? Do you write in a style that uh, makes me feel seen? Um, what your copy should do, what your messaging should do, those moments that it feels so personal and you can't be objective, it, it often can't be because we are speaking to the voices in our head and our ego, and we're not playing that mental game you're talking about. We're giving into the demons instead of being able to step back, be objective, and ask the question, why should anyone care? Why are they coming to me? What do I want them to do? Um, instead, we are working on self-definition, right? Like we are working on how we want to be viewed. Um, I call this um, right to your customers, not your colleagues. So oftentimes we're competing with our colleagues in our mind or that English teacher from fifth grade who told you, you can't write like that. Um, and, or we just wanna be impressive and we want our, someone to be proud of us. Um, and those are all the wrong reasons to show up in those ways. Like you need to think about the, the one person you're trying to reach and meet them again with that message of what's going on in their mind and how is how you show up blending into it. And I'll tell you, Mark, sometimes you don't know, like your first stab, you don't know. And it's, it's okay. Um, I, I think sometimes when, we, when you go from consultant, where you're doing one-on-one -on -one sales, you're doing a lot more in person to productizing and to having, you know, uh, e-courses and books or podcasts or something that's more um, mass and scalable and you kind of lose that one-on-one -on -one element so you can't customize the offer in the same way um it's really hard it's really hard to take yourself out of the equation when it feels so personal when you look at someone who who you know rejects your offer ostensibly and to go oh my god they hate me they hate me i'm doing a terrible job or there's two ways it goes right one person um i'm the oh my god they hate me person and then there's also the fuck you person who's like i don't even need them they don't care they don't matter what do they know? You know, like those are your two options. 
and, yeah. and both of those are the same side, two sides of the same coin, um, which, which is, I mean, here's, here's the answer. It has nothing to do with you, <laughs> why they did or didn't buy. Um, has to do with the problem they think they have and whether you solve it. Mm. I love that distinction between, you know, the focus on self versus the focus on your audience, you know, and it's like, it's very easy to personalize something that is not personal. Yeah. Uh, and then to, like you said earlier, start to create a story around it that may not line up with reality. You know, um, it reminds me of even my own experience with messaging, uh, not in anything having to do with marketing world, but everything to do with improvisational acting. Oh. Like the very first show that I ever did about like eight weeks into in improvisational acting, I, there were crickets like the entire time while I was there. Uh, eight minutes of grueling oh. silence where oh you have show, show lights on you. You can't see anyone's face, but you know they're sitting there and judging you silently. That's and horrible. you, yeah. <laughs> oh, and I was just just skin crawling the entire time and just just full on anxiety. Um, and the question that I remember asking myself before was, oh, my God, how do we not mess up this show? Like, what are they going to think? <laughs> da, 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 da. And then one year later, the last show that we did for the year, I remember asking myself a different question before I went out, which was, how do we make sure the audience has the best time possible? Yes. Night and day. They were laughing, we were laughing, and, and it's like when you take the focus off of yourself and you put it on the audience that you're trying to serve, everything else just, it just, just flows so much yeah. better. I want to piggyback off that because I think that is the most important point here. And when it comes to work that's personal, I find that it's helpful to distinguish for yourself in your business and in your creative life, like, what are you doing for you? And what are you doing for someone else? Because there, if you don't know the difference you're going to be confused every day and all of your communications are going to lose their punch. So for me, one of the most important things I did was say, you know what, my writing is mine. It's free, it's out there, but I'm doing it to find my own voice. And if someone gets value out of it, great. If they don't, they don't. Um, but I, I didn't want to sell the copy workshop through my email list. Cause I was like, I don't want to talk about copy all the time. I'm bored. I, I want to talk about other things that are weird. And I don't want to have to justify that. I want a place for it to live. Then Brainstorm Road, however, still has my voice, still yeah. has um, things I care about, but it is a company. And so it is sales emails, right? I want you to click. I want to help you solve a problem. The opt-in is totally different. The way um, you come to the place is with a distinct you know, qualified lead in mind, right? It's like, join the waitlist, buy now learn more about this versus you come to my website and it's like Margot writes stuff. <laughs> Here's her opinion. <laughs> Would you like it? Um, and and yeah. that was really important for me because it made my writing stronger, my sales stronger, because now I'm not confused. I'm not going into mm. my personal writing going, oh, but I have to sell this and then half-ass selling, you know, where you're like, okay, here's my strong opinion. And then by the way, would you maybe, are you interested? I'm doing this thing that's unrelated nearby. Um, and it confuses people. And mm -hmm. uh, so asking yourself and reflecting on that question, like if you have something you do for you, like maybe it's basketball, maybe it's dance. Like I know you do a lot of tango, like um, maybe it has nothing to do with your business. And those are, there's a separation of church and state, but there's something about um, the way we sell in consulting and especially online because it uses words that, and usually we are the face of it. 
that we start to take it personally and feel like it represents us, which it does, but it represents a part of you, right? So like Brainstorm Road represents the creative entrepreneur side of me. You are not going to see my mom side. You're not going to see my wife side. You're not going to see my friendship side, right? You're not going to see my Margo at the beach, right? Like th there are other aspects of your personality that you're not hiding or being inauthentic. It's just you're being, you have good boundaries. <laughs> you want to know how you're showing That's up. Such a great point. I, I, I want to I um, get just a tiny bit deeper on that, right? Uh, which is, it's uh, something I've personally wondered about. I know that it's something that uh, a lot of consultants think about. It's like, okay, I need to be authentic online, but like how much is too much to share? How much of like personal brand versus yeah. like professional brand? should be shared online and trying to navigate, um, uh, like you said, having good boundaries. Yes. So let's get a distinction really clear because I think almost no one understands this, especially dudes. Um, there's a massive difference between vulnerability, authenticity, and um, inappropriate disclosure. And most Ooh. of what we see online is inappropriate disclosure. You mm. sharing personal information with strangers is not brave, right? Like it is unbounded. Um, when you want to be vulnerable, when you're being brave, that's when you've shared with, the, with people who've earned the right to hear what you have to say. Now, how do you do that in a brand context? You have boundaries. What are boundaries? Those are value systems and rules that you determine for yourself for what your rules of engagement are. So that blah, blah, blah means this. I'll give you an example. For me, um, I'm a very, very impassioned person. I consider myself highly opinionated <laughs> topics. Um, there are topics that I will not touch in public. I won't touch them. I, and I've learned the hard way. I, I've done it before, but now I know that I am okay with people going, your silence is deafening because the trolling is so, in my opinion, I'd rather be effective more than right. So um, I don't like getting sucked into the, uh, virtue signaling and I know what kind of activist I am and I know how I show up in my real relationships. And um, for me, one of my boundaries is I keep my activism in my private life, but it's pretty public. Like if you know me, if you hang out with me at dinner, you're gonna know what the hell I care about and stand for. Um, but I'm not going to step into the fire on social media because I think it's garbage and I don't think it's useful. So that's a boundary I set. Another boundary is I don't talk about my daughter. Um, I'll talk about parenting, um, but I don't, she didn't ask to be a public figure. So I don't post pictures of her. I try not to use her name. Sometimes I do, but like she is not a part of this. So those are boundaries that I set for myself. Within that, I can show up authentically in a few, in, in many different ways. And I'll give you examples of ones you can choose for yourself. So you can be authentic by sharing um, a story that involves first person. So the, <laughs> I saying I, um, you can be authentic in tone. That's the version I use. So I don't always talk about something that is deeply, deeply vulnerable, but I, it's vulnerable in the sense that it is something I care about. So for example, um, talking about self-actualization or Thoreau. I had a whole breakdown on why I think Thoreau is a giant douchebag and <sighs> I wrote it in my voice, right? So the part of it was, that was authentic was me doing basically a literary breakdown on a marketing list. And so um, like, that's me, <laughs> that's me being myself um, without having to tell you private details of my private life 
or mm. my, you know, mental health conditions or what my mother's going through, or like I have boundaries, but I still revealed something of my heart, right? That is, that's something that I could, that is vulnerable for me. Like you can make fun of me. Um, and I probably would be, uh, so, so those are, so tone, uh, topic, tenor, those are things that, that, um, are ways you can show up authentically. I also think like, don't confuse authenticity with needing to be naked, right? Like you can be authentic and real in the way that like, I'm showing up right now, authentic and real with Mark, but like I have makeup on, does that mean he's not seeing the real me? No, we have many aspects to who we are. And, um, and like, I did my hair. Does that mean he's not seeing the real me? Yeah, no, he's not going to see me with, a, with like a bun on the top of my head while I'm trying to be in a professional setting. That is unprofessional. So don't confuse authentic with unprofessional. So mm. you can still exist professionally within your category um, and still be real without being inappropriate. Mm. That's what I mean by boundaries. Love, love, love uh, that distinction. We, we could just like clip that and just like end the podcast <laughs> right now. Like that, that that's, that's, it's a great um, succinct uh, and useful uh, description of boundaries and also context, you know, within like professional setting and like uh, personal life um, as well. Like that, that is incredible. I'm looking at my notes because my mind is now blank because you just like dropped the mic. <laughs> so now I've got to <laughs> regroup. <laughs> for like the... <laughs> Everyone, go uh, get a drink of water. We'll be right with you. You know, uh, so, so there's something else that um, I want to dive into um, that I think you'd be, uh, I'd love to get your perspective on, which is, Consultants uh, and service providers don't always realize that when they have to start thinking about messaging, now they're now stepping into the world of marketing, uh, mm -hmm. ergo, you know, uh, uh, copywriting um, and figuring out their message. They, they aren't necessarily trying to become uh, professional direct response copywriters, you know, and so like how do they, how do we find the time to write, to create? you know, and to do it in a way that has the boundaries that we were just talking about, but to just also practically find the time to do it. Something that I've admired about you over the years is just how consistent you've been with your newsletter and it's consistently high quality um, as well. And so you've also, for anyone that's not listening, like Margaret is also, you know, like, like she's taught over 4,000 people, like how to get better at this. So uh, take notes, no pressure. <laughs> So the first thing I would start with would, would be, how do you get customers? Because I think the mistake a lot of consultants make is if you aren't, if your point of sale is not online, then you actually can get away with pretty mediocre copy. <laughs> and I know this is sacrilege to say, I'm going to get fired, Mark's going to cut this. But um, I cannot tell you how many consultants I've worked with that I had to sit down and be like, listen, this is a reference site. Your your customers are coming from who you know and building your um, real life network and your you know, speaking network. And they are Googling you after finding out about you. And so what they wanna see on the site is that you're legit, um, but they are calling, right? They're calling, you're not asking for their email. Um, that's a really different uh, copy need versus uh, someone who is trying to productize and create a brand and um, develop you know, e-learning and products and, and sort of build themselves out of their business. So then there's a, here's an even more pointed follow-up question to that then. There is a 
distinction that I often see with consultants and service providers when they're thinking about productizing because everything has been through word of mouth and like referral only prior to the point of productizing. But once they get ready to productize, they're basically more or less getting ready to build this marketing engine that now mm, introduces okay. people who don't yet know them. Yep. They don't. And so, you know, whether it's organic traffic or it's, it's paid or social media or whatever the case may be. Uh, and they may not even realize that they don't have the context of yep. how to talk to someone that doesn't already have some brand yes. Uh, recognition. Yes. Where do we start? Yes. Oh, I love this question. Okay. So, okay. First of all, I want you to take everything that you know about writing and throw it in the garbage can. Um, and I want you to think about words differently. You are no longer operating where you need to write the perfect sentence. What you are doing with language when it comes to building what Mark just said is, you, is engineering. I want you to think of yourself as an engineer. It's not about being right. It's not about being wrong. It's not about sounding good. It's not about sounding bad. It is about being effective. How do I get a person I've never met before to take an action, to trust me. It's like a puzzle. It's so much fun. And for each one of you listening, the answer is different, right? This is why mm. I friggin' hate tactics because the answer is different. So I can give you each a tactic, but it's not gonna be helpful because the answer is different for every single market. This is why Eugene Swartz is so good. If you wanna geek out, go to Eugene. If you don't, if we're answering this question on more of a top level, um, he says that every single advertising uh, moment is a breakthrough because it's different. Like you're going to have a different market in a different moment with a product that's different. Um, every single time you do something, so you're reinventing the wheel the whole way through. And I agree with him. And that's the fun of it. You basically are, it's kind of like comedy. You're only as good as your last performance. Like you um, Okay. So my, my tirade aside, um, focus on being effective. Now, what does that mean? How do we do this? And this is where the principles of psychology become important. Um, this is where I would tell you something fluffy, but it's not fluffy and I'll tell you why. This is where you need perspective taking and empathy. And I like to do an empathy exercise. I like to sit down and I want you to take everything in your mind and throw it in the garbage and go, okay, what does a person who has a $5 million budget and you know, um, feels really bad about his appearance need? Um, you know, how, what is he thinking about during the day? What's going through his mind? Is he trying to get a date? Why does he care about clothes or clothes something he's thought about before? I'm assuming you run a clothes business in this example. Um, you know, and, uh, and his budget for clothes is $5 million, right? <laughs> is that, you know? So I'm just, I'm, I'm making this up, but like, I want you to put yourself in his shoes, not an avatar for what the ideal customer might think, but the real one, like the person who's taking the subway, the person who has a driver, the person who's fighting with his kids before he walks out the door, like what's on his mind? And then how, when does your communication intersect with them, right? Are they seeing an ad? Are they hearing about you in, uh, on a podcast? Are they um, uh, getting a piece of mail from you? Like what is that moment where they meet you? And if you met them in real life, what would it look like? Because that's all this is. It's you meeting them in real life. So if I meet you for the first time, you don't know who I am. And I'm like, hi, give me $700. You'd be like, go fuck yourself, right? Like that's like really horrible. I don't know if you can curse on here. Um, 
So go for it. Sorry. <laughs> so, um, you know, first I want to be like, Hey, I'm Margo. Like, it's so nice. How, so how do you know Mark? Um, uh, right. Like I'm starting a conversation. So, um, I would get to know you and I would sort of gauge by listening to what you don't say, whether or not we could be friends and you like me or don't like me. Um, and I would be working on, uh, getting a feel for who you are and building a relationship. So the, the principles that you have of getting to know someone and turning, I mean, they call it conversion, right? But I don't want to use that language, like building a relationship with someone so much so that they want to give you money to solve their problem. Um, how do you do that with words? Well, you move forward with perspective taking, with empathy, and then you think, what does this person need to hear? And how can I show up with a message that resonates? which is Jay Akunzo's stuff is resonance. But um, so to your question on like, how do we do this in a way where I don't have time to learn this skill, right? I don't need, I can't read 25 books. I can't take a $4,000 class. Um, you know, what, what, what are the basics that I need to move forward? I want to remind you that you're doing this every single moment of every single day in your freaking life. So the fact that people think that copy is a skill that they have to learn, it, it's a skill you better at in the same way you can get better at walking and running, but you know how to walk and run, right? So when you are talking to your friends about where you're gonna to go to dinner, you're copywriting. When you are deciding what you're going to choose on a menu, you are looking at copywriting. When you are um, deciding with your spouse who's gonna hire the babysitter, when you're deciding with the babysitter how much you're gonna pay them and what time they're gonna leave, when you are um, going to the bar with friends and having a discussion and figuring out who's going to pay the bill. Like all of that is copywriting. And what I mean by that is those are all moments where you are persuading someone, where you are connecting with someone and trying to take an action, where you want a result at the end of that interaction. So you as a human being have this skill innately. You have it. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to parent. You wouldn't be able to date. You wouldn't be able to have friendships. You know how to connect. You know when someone's listening to you. Now, whether you choose to deploy these skills or not is another thing for you, between you and your therapist. But as far as it pertains to copywriting, the, the only mechanic you really need to know about copywriting is perspective taking, empathy, and write as you speak. Mm. Write as you speak. And you can still do it professionally. And that's another topic we can geek out on another time. But, but when you realize that like some of the best copywriters, and I'm pretty sure, Mark, you do this, like voice it. They don't even write it down. They send themselves yep. voice notes and they tra transcribe them. Almost every single master copywriter I know does this. Um, and that's because when we write, we, we take on a different tone. We become like kind of stuffy and we want to write well. And I don't want you to write well, right? I want you to write effectively. And to write effectively, you need to speak. You need to speak effectively. I want you to sit down and wonder, here's, here's a, you know what? Let's just give them this, Mark. Let's give them the bar stool technique. You are sitting at the bar with the person you need to sell something to and you both had two drinks, what are you talking about? Do that exercise, put it in your voice notes, verbal vomit it, edit it, you've got your copy. Fantastic. That is wonderful. Um, and also, you're spying on me because I did that yesterday. I <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Um, I also want to be super respectful of your time. I know that, you know, you, you know, you have things to do in your day. Um, and so before we go, um, I, I want to close out with like, uh, two questions. Mm -hmm. The first is if you could go back in time 
to tell Margot, the researcher, everything that Margot knows now, what would you tell her and why? Oh, man, she wouldn't listen. I, th I, I feel like people <laughs> did tell me, right? Um, I think the most, goodness, because people told me a lot of things. The one I probably would have heard if it was said more directly to me is that it's okay to say no. Uh, I think that I was not discerning, uh, and I got really into the, you know, Derek Sivers, hell yes or no thing. So then I got overly constricted. I think that there's a line and in how you spend your time, I used to feel like if I said no to something, um, that I wouldn't get another opportunity. Or if I said no to someone and set a boundary, um, that they wouldn't like me and there'd be consequences. And the thing that no one told me is there are consequences. You know, they, they, a lot of people who promote saying no are like, it's hell yes or no, and you're opening the door to other things, and it's abundant, and like, that's not true. You actually, there are consequences to saying no. Sometimes you're not invited back. Sometimes people don't like you. Sometimes clients are really angry, but I would still push her to say no and stand in her power, and uh, I think she would have been a better negotiator. I think she would have uh, respected herself more and seen that the people around her would respect themselves more when she respected herself and showed up in that way. So um, I, I think that I would say uh, learning how to be more discerning with my time, you know, say, say no. And that includes saying no to things as simple and seemingly trivial as no, I will not respond to this email. Like you're going to have to wait mm. four days. Yeah. I'm still not that... great at it, but we're getting there. <laughs> we are all a work in progress. Um, Thank you for all of this. And the final question is, where can we learn more about you? Come hang out. So there's two places that I live. One is thatseemsimportant.com, which is my <clears throat> blog, I guess. <laughs> Come um, get on my newsletter. We geek out on stuff. It's not always marketing, but if you like talking about self-actualization and philosophy and uh, psychology and nerding out with people who want to make the world a better place, then come hang there. Uh, but then there is my business, which is Brainstorm Road. And it is a community of practice, which is jarble for we peer pressure you <laughs> to <laughs> ship your dream project. So if you're sitting on a nice. screenplay, or you like to DJ or whatever it is when you're not being an accountant, um, come hang out with us and be with people who also want uh, to get their work out into the world. What we're trying to do is, is really create a small version of Y Combinator for people with dreams and um, work them through six months of shipping and building a practice. So brainstorm road. I love it. Love it. Thank you again. This is phenomenal. And it probably won't be the last one. So I hope not. Slipping, slipping <laughs> that one in there. Um, everyone, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.